Hi, hello. Uh, you are here because you are bored, or you, possibly even worse, actually maybe value my opinion. I have a name now. Welcome to Passive Pixels, a media catch-up podcast with your only host until I either do a couple of episodes where we bring something extra on or until I just decide, screw it, and then make it zero hosts because I leave my own podcast. One of the Edwin Castillos. Now... That joke is just for the people who know me. For everyone else, I'll explain later if it ever comes up. So, there should be a little bit of preamble about the last episode, but you know what? I already feel like I'm going to be here a while because I counted up 17 topics. So, I'm just going to jump into the part where I start listing off what is basically what I've been watching the last two weeks or so. Or playing, one or the other. We've got How I Met Your Mother, Dirty Dancing, Collateral, Mr. Robot, a Night in the Woods, Bastion, Hyrule Warriors, Age of Calamity, Inside, Party Hard, the Resident Evil 8 demo exclusive to PS5, The Pathless, Uncharted 4, specifically getting the trophies, Rock Band 4, Mario Party 7, Metal Gear Solid 2 VR Missions, Mad Men Season 1, and The Little Things. So, I'm going to look at this thing. And I think I'm going to organize it the same way I did last time. Uh, movies and then games. Uh, however, there are a couple of TV shows in here, so I think I'm going to go movie, TV, games. Alright, then from here, let me go ahead and get started with the first movie that I watched after finishing recording the last episode. Dirty Dancing. So, Dirty Dancing is one of the movies that I've just purchased because I have a theater room. And I don't know what to ever talk to my parents about almost the entire time whenever they come visit. So what better to do than to just watch a movie in silence and pretend like you guys spent time together? Now, I say that cynically, but hey, it's nice time spent together. Dirty Dancing is one of the movies that my dad loves probably ever since I can remember things in general. Just, I don't know how long he's loved it. May, I don't know his history, whether if he watched it in theaters and loved it, or maybe he caught it on repeat in TBS one day and thought, oh, wow, you know what? I'm going to watch this. So this one actually kind of fits in the category that Titanic did last time, which is, this is one of the movies that my dad really likes that I just remember being around me for most of my childhood. While in comparison, I really like Titanic and even did like Titanic back then, I did not think Dirty Dancing was going to be anything good. I remember making fun of Dirty Dancing as well as Top Gun as movies that my dad really likes that I just thought, oh, that's old. Why the hell do I care? I'm young. I want to go listen to Eminem instead. Why am I going to listen to, oh my God, I can't even remember any of the songs from Dirty Dancing. Moving on. And so far, I mean, I watched Top Gun with my dad and my mom, of course. And, you know, I guess my wife was there, too. And Top Gun, you know, was good. It was just the very enjoyable cheese from the 80s that is just always comforting. Dirty Dancing, I thought, was just going to be a bit more of that cheese. I thought it was just going to be, you know, grimacing to the camera. Uh, we're going to save the rec center through the power of dancing, although it's going to be a little dirty. Like, I, I thought that's what I was going to get into, but no, I found myself actually caring more than I thought. So, uh, what is Dirty Dancing? It feels weird even explaining this, just because it feels like a cultural landmark, at least, just because we're living in a decade that... Even though we should be moving on to 90s nostalgia, we're already still... We're still stuck on the 80s. So... 
Dirty Dancing is a movie about a girl who is the daughter of a doctor who I... I had a real thing for that doctor. I'll explain later. But she was at this resort. She saw Patrick Swayze in just his magnificent 80s-ness and decided, you know what? I want that. I, which was pretty fun. I mean, seeing that it was an 80s movie and it wasn't the dude just immediately taking her up on just completely be the dominating force between the relationship even happening. It was a nice change of pace. I mean, most of the time, whenever I think 80s movies, I think Breakfast Club. I think of Judd Nelson, you know, holding up his fist after he was able to actually date Molly Ringwald. I was racking my brain to try and think of other 80s movies, but for some reason, Breakfast Club is literally the only one that's coming up to mind because, you know what, I already put it in the masthead that this was going to be very forgetful. So, you know what, I'm on brand right now by being forgetful. So, the idea is that... Of course, someone falls in love with Patrick Swayze because how can you not? How can you not fall in love with Patrick Swayze in the 80s? No matter what role I've seen this man in, this man just has a charm to him that just made him such a superstar. I was watching this and I kept thinking about Roadhouse and just seeing how this man could flash a smile and you're like, you know what? Yeah, I don't care what the hell's going on in this movie. I just need to see Patrick Swayze do some things. He's going to karate kick someone. I'm in. The man's going to dance. I'm in. Whatever Patrick Crazy could be doing in the 80s, I'm in. And I thought that Dirty Dancing was going to be more in that vein. Just kind of, hey, here's Patrick Swayze doing something. Don't you want to watch him? Which, you know, that would have been enough to sell me. But I found myself actually caring about Dirty Dancing way more. And I ended up fixating on something that was completely pointless. Which is, sadly, uh, the doctor um, in the movie. So just because I know that Dirty Dancing isn't a movie that people have watched... The beats are Jennifer Grey plays a character named Baby. Baby sees uh, some people working at this resort dancing and of course sees Patrick Swayze, falls in love with him because of course how can you not? Patrick Swayze has a dance partner, the dance partner has the need of an abortion and Baby in desperation gets her dad to check up on her because she basically had a rusty knife shoved inside her to get an abortion. After he sees that Patrick Swayze is the guy that's hanging around her, basically assumes, oh, he knocked her up, and then you told her to get an abortion and probably have a machete be used. Uh, and from there, noticed that Baby was being close to Patrick Swayze and went, yeah, you know what? I kind of don't want you to hang out with the dude who might have knocked up this girl and forced her to get an abortion from a dude who's probably using a katana to do it. Of course, the movie takes place in the 60s. I don't think Roe v. Wade was until the 70s, so it was already backdoor and illegal stuff. So, you know what? The doctor... This entire movie, I just felt really bad for the doctor because the doctor did not deserve this, okay? They've at the very beginning of the movie, established that this man has been working for, I don't even remember at this point, but this man had been working for, let's just say months without a break. And he's trying to come here. He's just trying to enjoy his time off. But no, his daughter has to go and fall in love with some dude who's not actually the father. He's not. He's just a very good friend to his dance partner. But if Baby didn't have that connection to Patrick Swayze, then this dude would probably still be relaxing in his hotel room instead of checking on a woman who had a backdoor abortion in in like the back of like a Burger King or something. He, he rightfully tells her, he rightfully tells her, hey baby, maybe I don't want you to hang out with the people who are getting abortions, you know, while it's completely illegal while I'm on my vacation. Could you please just not do that? And Baby just goes, no, I'm the protagonist 
protagonist of an 80s movie, damn it, I need to do what I want. And we get a very nice dance montage, and almost every iconic scene that you can think of from Dirty Dancing actually works. I didn't expect that. I thought I'd watch it and be like, oh yeah, look, it's that one scene. But no, I, I was just shocked that consistently Dirty Dancing wasn't a meme 80s movie. It was just a good movie that took place in the 80s, which... Speaking of which, the movie takes place in the 60s, but it actually came out in the 80s. But they do the bare minimum to make it feel like it's in the 60s, and it's hilarious. Most of the music that they're dancing to feels like it would be perfect in the 80s. Even the final song that they danced to was a hit because of the movie, of course, but was a hit in the 80s, and it's not something you'd hear in the 60s. I don't really get why they decided to place it in the 60s, because you can have anyone, anyone can have a backdoor abortion in the at the back of a Burger King, and it would still be dangerous regardless, even whether if it's illegal or not. But for some reason, they just really wanted to push the 60s angle, and, which is hilarious, especially when everyone still looks like they're in the 80s with all their hairstyle and their clothes. I don't get it, but you know what? I will let it go. I will let it go because Dirty Dancing is an actual enjoyable movie. Most of the scenes that are actually heartfelt are still enjoyable. Patrick Swayze is good in almost anything. I This man has a charm to him that I, is irreplaceable. And every single time I watch him on screen, it just makes me a little bit sad to know that we no longer have him. So, of course, just finish the movie. I really enjoyed it. I almost kept my Blu-ray copy, but no, I decided to gift it to my dad because that's what I do with these movies. Any movie that I wouldn't have watched because of him, I then just gift him the copy. At some point, I will watch Grease. I have that 4K copy just sitting one of these days, and that'll probably be the same story. But no, Dirty Dancing. Once again, my dad comes in with a good taste in movies. Maybe at some point, Saturday Night Fever might get rotated in, but Dirty Dancing. Who knew? Good. Now, the next movie is one that I could gush for for quite a while. And at least from the feedback that I heard about the last episode, it seems like it's fine if I cross over an hour. So fuck it. Let's see it. The movie is Collateral. Now, Collateral, directed by Michael Mann. It stars Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx. Tom Cruise is a hitman. He is in town in L.A. for one night. Man has five hits that he has to hit. And then he's gone from L.A. Jamie Foxx is the cab driver that he hires for the night to drive him everywhere. He wasn't supposed to know what was going on. You assume that Tom Cruise was going to kill Jamie Foxx by the end of the movie had Jamie Foxx not known about Tom Cruise being a hitman. But the first kill that Tom Cruise takes out for the night falls on the cab and it becomes impossible to be able to hide, you know, what he's going to be doing tonight. Now, looking at my list... I'd have to say that this is probably my recommendation for the last two weeks if, you know, you don't want to watch a 40-plus hour TV show, which once we get there, I will implore you to do. But if time is a factor, this is probably my pick of the week? Month? Half month? I don't know what to call this. Maybe my high point of the second month. But if I may just start gushing about Collateral because that's why I'm here. I don't know if that's why you're here, but that's why I'm here. Collateral is just a phenomenal movie. I love... This is the one thing I specifically do love about this movie more than anything else. Michael Mann, as a director, just understands that when you shoot a gun, it's loud. 
you feel it running through your body. And every single time that he has a gunshot that's either in Collateral or in the movie Heat, you hear that gunshot and it it startles you. This is the first movie I actually had to turn it down, not because I was thinking, oh, this is going to be too loud. I turned it down because I thought, I don't need the neighbors thinking that I'm shooting someone over here. So, of course, sound design is one of those things that in this movie is just highly prioritized. I am always going to be an audio over video person, and Collateral just gives me that. Every single gunshot in this movie is just crisp, and it's exactly what I want to hear from gunshots. At some point, gunshots just become background noise. But in this movie, every single gunshot that you hear impacts you hard as a gunshot should. Now, this is something that I used to have that I just no longer have. I used to just not like Tom Cruise. I just always thought that Tom Cruise was default action hero. Who do you need in this random movie? Who do you need? Someone that will bring in people into the theaters. Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is default actor. There's nothing special about him besides he is default actor. But even back when this movie came out, 2004, I don't remember who chose it. I don't remember if it was my dad or my brother who chose to rent it at Blockbuster. But I remember watching this movie and thinking, man, this is good. Even when I was under the age of 10, I still knew that this is a good movie. I've known about this movie technically now for 17 years, which is horrifying to think about. And I've still carried it with me to this day. And back then, I was just thinking, oh, well, you know what? Tom Cruise, he's default actor, except for Collateral. But then I watched Edge of Tomorrow, and I thought, oh, well, you know what? Okay, he, he he's good in Collateral and Edge of Tomorrow. Okay, but Tom Cruise still sucks. And then I watched Top Gun, and then I watched The Mission Impossible. And I realized I kept making exceptions, and then I realized, okay, you know what? I like him. Okay, you know what, Tom Cruise, I'm so sorry for any of the shit I gave you. I like you. And in this movie, he's just so intense. This man really feels like a psychopath who's just continuously manipulating you with every single thing he says. And it's so incredible to see the interplay between him and Jamie Foxx. Tom Cruise's character in this movie is just so nihilistic when in comparison you have Jamie Foxx who is just someone who needs everything to be in the perfect order unless things might go wrong. And the entire movie is just Jamie Foxx learning to let go a little bit. He at some point has to impersonate Tom Cruise's character because he screwed him over. And the scene when Jamie Foxx turns and actually becomes and starts embodying the character that Tom Cruise is, is such a great moment because you start getting this little character beat that Jamie Foxx's character is actually starting to let go. He's actually starting to learn something from the man who has, for all intents and purposes, kidnapped him. I mean, Jamie Foxx can't leave, all right? Tom Cruise will blast him if he needs to, so the, his best bet is to tag along to stay alive. Now, because I just keep saying them in first and last name by their by their actor names, of course, let me at least mention their character names. Tom Cruise plays a hitman named Vincent. Jamie Foxx plays a cab driver named Max. Max's character is very 
control freak. He doesn't ever like to do anything that might have any sort of risk to it. He drives a cab because it is steady. He just continues doing that even though he has higher aspirations. There's a scene where to avoid suspicion of Max doing anything out of the ordinary this night than any other night where he has to go visit his mom in the hospital. Through Vincent's conversation with Max's mom, you realize that Max has been lying to his bedridden mom for this entire time just because it's easier to tell her that he's already made it instead of him actually trying to make it because he knows that she will berate him for wasting his talents taxi driving for over a decade instead of chasing the limousine company that he wants to create. At the beginning of the movie, he speaks to an important character who is supposed to be kind of our feeling out of who Max is as a person and, of course, endearest to him a little bit, played by Jada Pinkett Smith. Their little banter back and forth is supposed to make you realize that Max is good at his job. He does have high aspirations. He is a kind person. He doesn't deserve what is going to happen to him shortly after. But even when he's speaking to Jada Pinkett Smith, it feels like he's evasive, like that he doesn't want to admit his failures, that he knows he has, but he just hasn't done anything to rectify. It's something that's incredible that Tom Cruise is playing, you know, he's playing a hitman. It's easy to say, okay, you know what? Hitman probably shouldn't need to exist. However, free market, you know what? I'm not going to go there. He probably shouldn't be killing these people. But the fact that he has a positive influence, whether if it was by intention or not, on Max's entire life, it's it just is incredible to watch, to see a movie that lets you know that you don't know what you're going to learn from from someone that you never thought you'd meet. The subtle transformation that Jamie Foxx has throughout this movie as someone who's completely meek to by the end realizing that things aren't going to go right in his life and he has to be able to adapt. Tom Cruise's character is completely nihilistic. He doesn't see any point to anything. So whenever he kills, he's just thinking, well, we're ants on a big rock in the middle of nowhere. What is one light going out? And Jamie Foxx is completely on the other end where he thinks, no, I mean, all everything is important. How I keep my taxi, how I keep everything organized, how I carp compartmentalize every little piece of my life. All of it is important, but the entire movie is about Jamie Foxx's character realizing that he has to let go. There's things in this universe that just will happen regardless, and he must embrace that or else he will be left behind as he currently already was. I cannot recommend this movie more than enough. I love this movie. If I had to stop and think about it, it may be a top five or top 10 for me. I am always up to rewatch this movie. This is yet another movie that I really like that Chris Cornell has a song in. Shadow of the Sun is so good in this movie. It is a perfect primer to the buildup that happens before a big action moment. I don't, I don't want to talk about that because I feel like I... I already explained why that scene is good by talking about the sound design. This is one of those movies that if you haven't heard of, which I wouldn't be shocked. I don't hear people talk about Collateral unless someone brings it up. 
people are more likely to talk about Heat, which, you know what, I understand, you know, it was the first movie that Robert De Niro and Al Pacino were actually acting together in. I understand why people like Heat, but I really have a soft spot for Collateral. There's, every single time that I watch it, I appreciate it more and more. All right, so... The last movie that is on this list is the most recent thing that I've watched. It's a movie called The Little Things. It is a movie on HBO starring Rami Malek and Denzel Washington and creepy-ass Jared Leto. It is a murder mystery that every time I was staring at the screen, I just kept thinking, why aren't you seven? That should pretty much give you an idea of how I feel about this movie. There was nothing in this movie that had me excited. It also probably doesn't help that I was watching Mad Men prior to watching this movie. So if anything isn't at the writing level that Mad Men is, it was just going to be a letdown. But I would even still say that had I not watched Mad Men, I felt like the actual dialogue was pretty weak. I mean, there's a scene where someone literally goes, oh, I see the world in two ways. It's good. You got good and you got the bad. And I kept thinking, oh, okay, cool. Is there going to be something extra to, you know, not make it sound cliche? And they did nothing to not make it sound cliche. And I just kind of despaired a little. At least from the solitary review that I've seen about this movie, the person who... I watched said that they liked it and they said that it was anchored basically by those three actors which I didn't really feel that much. Denzel Washington is an actor that I don't think I vibe with too much. I can appreciate what he's doing on screen but I mostly appreciate the charm that he has but I would never say oh man look Denzel Washington in the movie that sells me on it. He's a perfectly good, even great actor that I just for some reason don't connect with. He was good in this movie, oh, I can say that, but I for some reason just can't muster up any excitement for this movie. Rami Malek, he's going to show up again later on in this podcast, but for way better stuff. In this movie, I mean, he's playing a character, sure. He gets to act... He's not acting badly, but uh, the two main leads just kind of live and die by the material that they're given. And I just don't think that the material is good in this movie. It is your very standard, oh, people are dead, find the killer story that you've seen done better. It's why I mentioned Seven. I kept watching this movie and I kept thinking, why can't you just be Seven? I'd much rather you just rip that off. I'd rather you rip that off completely than to have to continue watching this. So, you know what? I don't mind going into spoilers for this one. So, someone is killing women, I think. I don't remember if it's specifically targeting women. Keep in mind, I watched this movie yesterday, which why, for the most part, I can understand that I forget stuff all the time. But I should not be able to forget this movie less than 24 hours after having watched it. We have Denzel Washington being a small town cop who was disgraced from L.A. He goes into L.A. to get evidence for a different case when Rami Malek, who took over his job that Denzel Washington was kicked out of. The two of them have to now check on this new case with a new dead body that is related to a case that sent Denzel Washington into just a self-destructive despair pit most of the movie is centered on whether if jared leto did it or not 
It feels like Jared Leto is stuffed with a whole bunch of red herrings in either direction, whether he did or didn't do it. And the movie just decides really not to let there be a definitive answer, which that's completely okay. You know what? Ambiguity at the end of a movie is very good. You can go back and look at the different hints to come up with your own conclusions. I have no problem with that, but in a movie that is so bog standard, I just don't feel like anything in this movie is done exceptionally. Except, except, Jared Leto's performance in this movie makes me so sad that he got to play the Joker and we got Suicide Squad. Jared Leto's career is basically just playing crazy people, and on paper, Jared Leto playing the Joker sounds awesome because he's playing the Joker in this movie. His quiet mannerisms, the way that he doesn't take anything seriously, the way that he totally could be a murderer, he's just playing the Joker, and it just makes me sad that we got Suicide Squad, but that's... No, you know what? Suicide Squad is probably never going to be on an episode just because there is no fucking way I'm ever going to watch Suicide Squad again. So Jared Leto's performance, a bright spot. He's having so much fun, and in a movie that's trying to take itself very seriously, it probably doesn't help that Jared Leto is hilarious in this movie. He's doing literally nothing, he's not joking or anything. His complete body language of this in this movie is comedic perfection, and that probably doesn't help the serious tone to the movie. Uh, one more thing that I really appreciated. For some reason, the score in the movie was bumping. I actually really enjoyed it. I found myself listening to the tracks of the movie and had this not had the good performances. I personally didn't care for it, but I could acknowledge their good performances. Jared Leto's complete, complete, perfect comedic timing in this movie, whether intentional or not, most likely unintentional. I could still have walked out of this movie thinking the score was actually trying though. I'd never be able to recommend a movie just for its score unless, you know, it's a musical, which at that point, I guess I understand. But the score is at least something that for scenes that I didn't really care about, it would come in and I would suddenly start caring. Like I said, it's going to be just a re reoccurring thing that whenever I hear music that I like, it's going to influence me. To like the product more. So yeah, The Little Things, yet another movie on HBO Max that I don't care about. Which, to be fair, it's still fine just because HBO Max is still the best streaming service content-wise. But they are literally the actual worst streaming quality-wise. Honestly, I swear, watching this movie felt like I pirated it. And not even a good copy. And that wraps it up for movies. You know, Collateral, Dirty Dancing, then The Little Things. The, the definitive list that everyone wanted to know if you had to compare those three movies. And from here, we're going to go into TV shows. And I'm going to go chronological. There's no reason for me to jump ahead. How I Met Your Mother. Now, I wasn't actually sitting down watching the entire series. I will allow a show to sneak in if I've watched a couple of episodes. If I watch... Just one episode out of the blue, I probably won't include it in an episode. But if I feel like I watched a couple of episodes, I'll rope it in. So while I didn't actually sit down and watch an entire season of How I Met Your Mother, I feel like I could still talk about it. Plus, because I did watch it fully through. So, it's been seven years, I think, since the finale. Why am I talking How I Met Your Mother? Well, it seems that my wife finally made a good choice, you know, besides me. 
and decided to rewatch How I Met Your Mother instead of rewatching Friends for the 57th time. She went from season one to season nine completely through, and from the early episodes, I found myself realizing, oh man, okay, this is actually still good. Now, adding context, I felt like I hated this show after watching the finale. I have problems with this show and how it ended. The show is pretty straightforward. It's in the title, How I Met Your Mother. The show is about a guy who is talking to his kids about 20 years after the events of the show, and he's telling them how he met their mother. And it's a friend's ripoff, but now with a gimmick of being able to jump back and forth between time. I had caught up, I want to say, for either season seven or eight to actually air live because my now wife, then girlfriend, really liked the show. And of course, whenever you're starting to date someone, you're going to basically try anything that you can do to be able to talk similar interests. And I found myself actually really liking the show. I mean, I at that time thought, oh, yeah, this is funny. This is good. And I was actually impressed with the fact that even when I would catch an episode or two whenever she was watching it now, of course, still thinking the exact same thoughts that this is still really well written. There are still some solid jokes that are wrapped in here. There are still actually some good emotional moments. But for some reason, this show works more for me as a Friends ripoff than literal Friends. I can't stand Friends. I really can't. But yet this show works for me. Now, I'm already talking positively about it, and I need to cut this show down now. The show's name is How I Met Your Mother. And the main character, for about four to five seasons, actually feels like everything he's doing is leading up to the premise of the show how he met these kids' mother. And the reason for that is that the show was always in danger of being canceled every single season, but they kept getting renewed. Every single season, they would end on a happy note with the main character being with a girlfriend, because just in case if they got canceled, they could go, oh, well, the last woman that he was with, that's the mother. Until about season four or season five, when apparently people were actually tuning in to watch it. So then at that point, they could do whatever they wanted. They were pretty safe. The problem is that Ted, the main character, by season four or season five, does not have any character growth for about half the show. And they instead give it to Barney, played by Neil Patrick Harris. Now, this is where I get really conflicted, because even when my wife was watching these episodes, I would still think that some of them were funny. Some of them still had the emotional moments. It was a drop in quality from the first half of the show, but it's nothing too dramatic. At least until about the last two seasons when you start getting Family Guy style cutaway gags. But it still felt like there was something enjoyable to watch. This may sound crazy to say, but I think that if How I Met Your Mother actually had not even a great ending, not even a good ending, not even a, an okay ending. As long as it wasn't horrible, people would be re-watching How I Met Your Mother at the same frequency that they would be The Office or Friends. But that ending disrespects a huge chunk of the show. The series finale of the show basically erases everything that's been done over the last four or five seasons, reverts the characters as they were almost in the beginning of the show, and it 
reverses them just to build them up into a different direction. And not only that, the entire final season of the show takes place over a weekend, except for the final episode when they jump ahead almost two decades to actually catch up to where the show begins with Ted talking to his kids. That final episode feels like a slap in the face because it tells you, oh no, the last four or five seasons, you probably could have completely skipped that. Just jump to this last episode and you wouldn't have missed a thing. Making season nine take place over that entire weekend when there's so many filler episodes that don't move anything, only to have the last episode completely rush through everything feels like a slap in the face. So I will say that from my wife watching How I Met Your Mother, it at least made me reevaluate the second half of the show. I don't think I ever wavered in thinking that the first half was good. I still think that How I Met Your Mother from seasons one through five is still a very strong show. It's only once you get the ending that you realize that half of the show is actually pointless. There's no reason to watch those outside of it's still fun to hang out with these characters and there's still some solid jokes in there. So, you know, if you are missing The Office since it's no longer on Netflix or if for some reason you're abstaining from getting HBO Max just for friends, which, by the way, there's more stuff to get for HBO Max. I'm not going to go there. That's another fight. How I Met Your Mother is in no danger of getting pulled from Hulu since it was made by Fox and who owns Fox? Disney. Who did Fox own? Hulu. So even though I still think that the ending is bad, I don't think the journey through the show is bad. Just maybe read a synopsis of the final episode instead of actually watching it yourself. Now, we're going to talk about Mr. Robot. Mr. Robot quite potentially be my favorite TV show. I don't want to go as far to say it's my favorite show just because of what I'm going to be watching after. Okay, so Mr. Robot is a TV show that I watched from the beginning and watched it on the final episode completely live. And this isn't my first watch. I have my best friend watching TV shows because he needs to be educated with what he's watching. He likes anime. He must be stopped. So I decided to introduce him to some real Kino the TV show, Mr. Robot. We had already watched most of the entire show, actually, prior to me recording this. But it was only recently that we actually finished it up. We literally had one episode left to watch, and that is what puts it on the list. What is Mr. Robot? Mr. Robot is the show that introduced us to Rami Malek and actually got him his first, I think, Golden Globe or Emmy, I'm not sure, for his performance in season one. Rami Malek is a person who works at a cybersecurity office in the daytime and is basically a hacker at night. He has a company that he hates that basically stole the Enron logo because why not? Enron's gone and if you need shorthand for evil, Enron. Now, the company that he hates, named E Corp or Evil Corp, as it's said in the show, is responsible for having poisoned his dad uh, by basically not having proper work security. He is met by a man who is only known as Mr. Robot, played by Christian Slater, and the entire show is the entire first season is them trying to delete debt from a bank that is so entrenched in the economy that by deleting their debt from that one bank, it would basically erase debt for everyone in the world. That is the most synopsis that I can give for season one, and I would say even most of the show, just because seasons two, three, and four are all about the ripple effects from the end of season one. 
And I'm, I don't want to spoil it because this show is absolutely worth watching. When it comes to performances, like I mentioned earlier with the little things, Rami Malek can act, okay? He can act, it's just that I don't think the material in that movie was good. In Mr. Robot, he is completely given every single chance to hit every single emotional beat that an actor can get. The show is perfect when it comes to all of its characters. None of them feel like they're completely out of place or that they ever do something completely out of character. The music is this perfect techno thriller sound that it's going for. The show never treats you like you're dumb and all the reveals all feel earned. And more importantly than anything else, it has a very satisfying ending. Having watched it originally, I was just more of thinking, please don't let it be Game of Thrones season eight. Please don't let it be uh, season eight. But no, it actually ends on a, at least from what I've seen, a universally agreed upon great ending. Don't let the name fool you or don't let the fact that it was on USA change your mind about it. Mr. Robot is easily one of the greatest shows from the last decade to have come out. Having watched the finale again has me in danger of thinking that it might actually become my favorite TV show. But uh, as I said, I need to educate my best friend in culinary arts that don't involve fucking anime. So the very next show that we're going to watch is The Leftovers, which as far as I know is the show that I would crown my favorite TV show. But after having finished up Mr. Robot recently, I think this one actually might be a contender for that spot. Here we are again, another thing that I can't help but gush about so much that I can't really talk about because it is something that I believe should be experienced. If you need a TV show to get into, I implore you, find Amazon Prime, steal it if you have to, find a way to get on Amazon Prime and watch Mr. Robot because it is a show that, even at its weakest, which is the first three to four episodes of season two, it's still higher quality than most of the TV shows you could be watching. I, I could definitely call it, at least from this list, that Collateral is the best thing you could watch from the list that I have if you don't want to put in the time. But I there's so much garbage that you're probably watching. You could easily just watch all four seasons of Mr. Robot to replace them. Another week where the best thing that is on the list can't really talk about much outside of just saying this is absolutely worth watching. So with the power of editing, you have no idea, but I went to actually go watch the last episode of Mad Men, the very next topic. My wife actually was interested in watching Mad Men, so we're actually going to watch that one together. So right after I finished the topic for Mr. Robot, I told her, hey, we still have one more episode left of season one. Let's finish that before I actually go back to recording. And we did. Mad Men, season one. Very, very, very high quality show. This is what people are talking about when they mention the golden age of television. So, what is Mad Men? The best way I can describe it is that it is just about mainly this one ad executive played by John Hamm named Donald Draper, Don Draper. And so far, the show seems to be about him being, of course, a broken person, as well as all the other 
broken people who work at that ad agency. And if it's becoming a trend, I just really like watching media about broken people. It's also very much a period piece. It takes place in the 1960s, but not Dirty Dancing 1960s, where it just completely feels out of the complete wrong time period. No, Mad Men actually does feel like it's in the 60s. And whoo, with every single person completely mistreating their wife or girlfriend and cheating on them constantly. You know what? Yeah, this is probably a bit more 60s than 80s. But now just having finished uh, season one, I think it was a very good season. Uh, the opening of the show is a very strong start. It establishes its tone very quickly of just this kind of very effortlessly cool and just dialogue that's to die for. I The writing on this show is just so top-notch where... Everything that they're saying just, it's so unnatural to how people speak, but all of them sound so great speaking it that realism doesn't matter. It just sounds awesome. It makes you want to hang on every single word that they say. All the characters are three-dimensional. I don't think anyone's a caricature. Everyone seems like they have their own goals. It, I'm Now that I'm sitting down and recording, I'm actually finding it really hard to figure out what is exactly the hook to Mad Men outside of 60s accurate period? I mean, I'm trying to think about what exactly is it that attracts me to the show. And of course, there's the banging intro, which I can't skip it. I don't plan on ever skipping it. But it comes down to not only the dialogue writing, but it comes down to the character writing, too. It doesn't seem like any character who gets introduced is just some two-dimensional person. Whatever writing that they get for either the dialogue they speak or the actual writing to who the character is, none of it feels like it's just wallpaper. All of them feel like actual three-dimensional people. And before you realize it, most of the show isn't even about Don Draper. It's about every other character that also works at Sterling and Cooper. I also gotta say that there's something about the fact that the show plays itself very subtly. The answers that you get from the words that the characters speak are never actually spoken. Most of the answers that you get from how the characters are feeling are left in the silences and left straight up to the performances. There are many times where a character will say a sentence, you in your head will think, oh, this is the cliche line that will be said next. And instead, that line isn't said. Instead, the character themselves will enact that cliche words you were thinking about. I just think the writing is superb. I can't give my judgment fully on the show so far. The only thing I can do is limit myself to speaking about season one, which starts off very strong, ends very strong, but I want to say that there is about two to three episodes where I started losing my interest, which were, you know, probably about the between seven to ten episode mark, which I am willing to forgive just because Mad Men came out in 2007, I think, which was a time period where most TV shows were still meant to run for 24 episodes. I mean, a show that I really like that was probably the first TV show I got into, Lost, was 24 episodes a season, and that show dragged because of it. Mad Men to have 13 episodes in 2007 is a big deal because that is a shorter episode run. So even now in my, you know... 14 year standard afterwards where I think every show is probably better served off with 10 episodes. Mad Men slacking a little bit at 13 episodes. I still had to commend it because it is old enough that 10 episodes, if you weren't on HBO, was 
unheard of. Which, now that I think about it, even The Sopranos, which is where the person who created Mad Men worked on Sopranos before, even Sopranos didn't limit itself to 10 episodes a season, so it feels like a little unfair to compare it now, but still, I mean, I this is what I watched. It's I'm I never watched it when it originally ran. I tried it once a couple of years ago, but I really do think I've become much more of an appreciator of TV and movies the older that I've gotten. I'm glad that even though I didn't enjoy it initially, that I have now been able to grow an appreciation for Mad Men. Hell, just as I finished the episode, my wife was telling me to hurry up with the recording so we can start season two. So, yeah, if you want a TV show where you see pregnant women drinking alcohol and smoking because, you know, it's the 60s and they don't know better, or children playing around with plastic bags and could easily suffocate themselves, or seeing a whole bunch of day drinking treated as if it's a normal thing, or so much chain smoking that you'll want to smoke a cigarette by the time that you're done with the show or so many children getting straight up secondhand smoke from every adult that's nearby or seeing those same children play with guns that look incredibly real where if children play with nowadays they'd probably get shot down by cops mad men season one i mean it's it's some high quality shit and i think even with just season one i think i can at least recommend it from here that is movies, that is TV, and now this is the part where I throw all credibility out and start talking games. So, I decided to dig out my Switch from its charging purgatory, and I just didn't know what to play on it, so this is probably going to be a rapid fire of five different games that I played on it. We'll start with A Night in the Woods. I couldn't get into this game. What is A Night in the Woods? It is a small indie game where I assume this cat dropped out of college and they have to go back to the town that they hadn't been there in years, and they have to deal with the awkward return and having everyone ask about their failures and having to readjust to how the city was different now. I myself have lived in Houston my entire life. I live, what, maybe 30 minutes away from my parents' house. So I feel like already off from the bat, this isn't a story that I'm going to be able to connect to, which is completely fine. I mean, there are stories that I connect to that I know for sure other people wouldn't connect to. So honestly, it's completely fine that I couldn't really connect to it. The gameplay to it was just kind of side-scrollery, making sure that you just click on everything. It was a bit of a walking simulator, but something about the story itself wasn't exactly just pulling me in, so I put in maybe less than 10 minutes and then moved on. From there, I tried Hyrule Warriors Age of Calamity, which is a spin-off Musou game of Breath of the Wild, uh, the newest Legend of Zelda game. What is a Musou? No. Well, to answer that question, it's Dynasty Warriors. What is Dynasty Warriors? Look up a video of it on YouTube. If you watch a clip of it for about 30 seconds, you know exactly what it is because it's the same gameplay over and over again. It's one character taking down 200 enemies and you just mash the same button over and over again. I had a feeling that this one wasn't going to be up to my taste, but since they said that it was a prequel to Breath of the Wild, I decided, you know what, I'll give it a shot. Maybe if I get far enough, the story will hook me and I won't mind the button mashing. But no, it didn't take me too long to get annoying with the button mashing. I just felt like it was a little too mindless and I don't feel like I have a connection with Breath of the Wild that strongly 
as opposed to just the whole Zelda franchise in general, that I dropped this game pretty quickly. But once again, I played it, even if it was for a little bit, it still got on the list. The next game that I tried and missed with me was Inside. Inside is the next game from developer Playdead. Playdead are the people who also made Limbo, which is probably one of the biggest indies back from the PS3 360 days. Now, once again, I didn't get that far into Inside because I didn't get that far from Limbo, and both of them kind of felt like the very same thing. They felt a very atmospheric, very artsy side-scroller with light puzzle elements with a very subtle story in the background, but I couldn't really push myself through. I don't really like that most of the puzzles, maybe I'm dumb, maybe I'm dumb, but most of the puzzles felt like they were very trial and error. Let me try this. Oh crap, I died. Reload and then let's try something else that'll probably kill me until I keep trying over and over again until I eventually get the right loop. Now, while that sounds like I'm explaining most video games, because most video games are die, try again, but it felt like most of it was going to be die, figure out a little bit more of the puzzle, die again, figure out a little bit more, and then finally continue on with the story. Maybe I'm dumb, but I felt the same way about Limbo, where I just didn't want to dedicate that much time to puzzles and an environment that was just very drab and quiet. Now, this isn't to say that it's bad. I'm, I'm just saying it's not for me. I know people really love Limbo. I know people really love Inside. I, they just don't speak to me, which is really sad because I really like their art style and I really like whenever a designer, either games or someone who is behind movies, or TV, just any sort of media. If you pay it extra attention to the Sono landscape, that's something I really appreciate. It just makes me sad that it seems like the actual story and gameplay aren't enough to hook me for inside to keep going. After that, I tried a little indie game that I enjoyed a whole lot more, but just didn't feel like sticking with, which is Party Hard. Party Hard is a small indie game that, for the life of me, I can't really tell you who developed. I don't remember. And the game is that you are a man who is living next to people who party too much. You put on a hockey mask and you are tasked with killing everyone at that party so you can actually get a good night's sleep. It's dark. It's morbid. You're over here pushing people into ovens and trying to make it seem like it was accidents. You're over here setting rooms on fire and killing the firemen just so that it lets the people burn. It's all in pixel art, so it's not like you're watching a Mortal Kombat fatality, but it, it was still really enjoyable. The problem is that I don't feel like I knew how to play it. I tried watching people speedrun it because if anyone can know how to play a game is speedrunners. They dedicate their time to try and break the game over itself to get through it as quickly as possible. And even when I was watching them play, I just felt like I don't know how to play this properly, how to optimize myself for the best one. And I didn't get even past the first level. At some point I went, I'm not being compelled enough to finish this so i didn't from there though at least from the five games that i tried on switch there was one that really clicked with me bastion bastion is a game by supergiant games they've been a developer that as far as i've heard they haven't really missed so far you've got bastion transistor pyre and hades which 
Hades is the biggest indie of the last year. So I've always heard about Supergiant, but I've actually never gotten into any one of their games. So I decided to try Bastion on my Switch, and there's just something about the tone of that game that really speaks to me. It's something about the narrator that just sounds like a space cowboy, just, ooh, there goes that guy. He's gonna roll around and shoot up things. I honestly don't remember what he says. All I know is that I hear that voice, and I'm just like, Ah, this is just, this is effortlessly cool. And the combat itself was pretty fun. I have no idea what the story is. All I know is that the tone and the music are good. The gameplay is fun. I don't really know what the story is. I put in less than 20 or 30 minutes before I decided to buy a physical copy on PS4. But it's a game that I think I'll stick to. I, <laughs> it shipped probably about six days ago and it hasn't moved at all. So I don't know when I'll get to play it, but... I, from what little I played, I liked it. I'll get back to it. After my little foray into Switch, I then decided to go into a different direction. Resident Evil 8 got its uh, reveal and a whole bunch of information uh, put out by Capcom. And included in that info, they released a demo exclusive to the PS5. Now, I love my PS5. God, that thing is just very nice. I love being able to play my PS4 games better, but to be honest, I've been playing my PS3 more than my PS5 within the last month or so. So it was nice to have a reason to go back to using such a nice device. The demo was probably about 20 minutes long. It had a couple of puzzles. It felt like more of a tone setter than anything that was actually really indicative of what you're going to be getting. And so far, that tone is pretty good. I mean, the horror atmosphere is still solid. The horror atmosphere is just as oppressive as it was in Resident Evil 7. The sound design is just horrifying it's hilarious every single time you pick up an item it feels like you've just discovered the worst possible thing of your life also just because i can't go without mentioning this the internet needs to stop simping these vampire ladies okay they really need to i get it you've been locked into your house for months now at this point all you recognize is just your hand as your lawfully wedded bride it's choose any other tab to jerk off to. You don't need these vampire ladies. Honestly, my only complaint is something that was apparently never in the cards for Resident Evil 8, which is that I'm going to compare it to Resident Evil 7. Now, here's the thing. Resident Evil 7 is a game you can play in PlayStation VR, and which I hate myself enough to have done. And I can tell you right now, Resident Evil 7 in PSVR is absolutely the way to play that game. They specifically designed the scares in that game to work in VR because they realized that if they just implemented normal scares into VR, you're going to get sued because you're going to get someone a heart attack. And because it doesn't seem like the PS5 has a way to actually run PS5 VR, and I assume maybe Sony didn't pay Capcom to make a VR version for the PS4 version of Resident Evil 8, it seems like this game is going to be stuck as just a game and not a VR game, which is really sad because PSVR, you could buy Resident Evil 7 alone and just play that on the VR headset and you would have gotten your money's worth. I'd still recommend you play Super Hot VR before you dump that VR headset, but Resident Evil 7 alone could justify the purchase of a headset. And it kind of makes me sad that knowing from this demo, it had normal horror timings, it had normal jump scares, and it had just kind of the cadence that you're used to, while VR had a different cadence to make sure, you know, you didn't accidentally punch out your TV. So it effectively rules out the possibility of a VR game from Resident Evil 8. 
Once again, I'm probably not even going to get on day one. I mean, that's just how I tend to play Resident Evil games. I enjoy the series, but never enough to get in day one. But whenever it hits 20 or 30, or maybe whenever I'm itching to play something, I mean, I might pick it up. I will definitely play it at some point, but we'll see at what price point I pick it up at. From here, I am going to revisit a game that I have actually beaten, which was The Pathless, uh, a game that I was playing last week, I finally completed this week. Now that I have beaten it, uh, I will say that it was a good game. I, I won't go as far as great. It's definitely not a bad game. It is very artsy. The music is very good. It is a game that, considering that it's an indie, I'm impressed by just how it understood spectacle, how it understood scale. The very final boss of the game is very bombastic and makes good use of the real estate on your screen. Overall, it just feels like a good game to slot in between different games. If you're playing something that's vastly different tonally from the next game you're going to play, the Pathless fits in really good as just a little 10-hour experience that you can get in, enjoy yourself, get out, and not really think about it too much outside of maybe seeing the name The Pathless and thinking, oh yeah, I enjoyed my time with it. So The Pathless, this is the first game I've actually beaten this year and I recommend it. It's on PS4, it's on PS5. As long as you have a nice TV and some good headphones because man, that soundtrack is pulling a lot of weight in that game. It is definitely worth playing. Now, the next game that I I considered complete but you know not really but I consider complete is Uncharted 4. Now I could talk about Uncharted 4 and how I feel about it but this is the part of the game sections where we start getting a little weird. Uncharted 4 I didn't actually beat starting you know at the beginning and then getting to the end. I specifically wanted to clean up the trophies that I had left. Of course trophies, achievements, Trophies is a PlayStation 1, Achievements is the Xbox 1. I wanted to get all of the trophies because it looks very nice in my games list to show, hey, look, he can actually get trophies sometimes. So I will be talking specifically about the platinuming process for Uncharted 4, which, of course, platinuming, it means that you get all the trophies for the game. Man, this platinum sucks. Man, getting these trophies is just so tedious there's so many collectibles in this game to find and so many different dialogues to choose and being able to find and having to dig through most of the chapter but i like uncharted 4 so much that i decided you know what i still want the platinum for this plus i always like the feeling of being able to delete the game after getting the platinum for it do i regret my time with it just a little but to see that i was able to get a platinum in this game it just feels nice to know oh look i actually did something and was able to stick with it. So after this, I'm going to bundle Rock Band 4 and Mario Party 7 together. So had two friends over, we hung out for a little bit. I had invited them with intentions of playing Mario Party because my wife and I have been itching to play Mario Party for a while. And what are friends for if not to force them to play games that require four people? Now I could talk about Mario Party in general, but I want to talk about Mario Party 7 specifically. I am very partial to the Mario Party games on GameCube. They are incredibly busted. They are cheap as hell. And you get to the end of the game and you get bonus stars that basically reward everyone that already has stars instead of bullshitting you. In 
That, that's just Mario Party in a nutshell, though. It, it's bullshit, and it's so much fun because of it. It's almost the same satisfaction you get from gambling, and that's really the fun of every single Mario Party game, you know, up until 8. Mario, Mario Party 8 on the Wii, and then everything afterwards just kind of sucks. But Mario Party 7, I am actually feeling like I might want to include it as the downfall of Mario Party, just because there's something about Mario Party 7 that the boards that themselves so most mario party games have a spot where you go and buy the star and that's the spot everyone's fighting to get to mario party 7 instead has three treasure chests randomly spaced on the map that you may get a star or you get a map the trade-off is that coins in normal Mario Party games cost about 20 coins, and in Mario Party 7, they cost you 10 coins instead, since you're chancing whether if you're going to get it or not. I don't know what it is. It feels like that's extra bullshit, and Mario Party works a whole lot better when it's unfair, but there's something about it that isn't as fun. I actually kind of wish that I had put Mario Party 5 or 6, because I think those are probably the best in the series. They're the ones that have the bullshit, but there's still a lot of fun to it. I'm partial to six just because in five, you have to actually pay to use the items that you get. While in six and seven, they're flowing like they're fucking candy. But even then, even Mario Party 7, which isn't exactly the best of the Mario Party GameCube games, it's still better than anything that came after. But, you know, Mario Party is Mario Party. It's bullshit and it's fun. From there, uh... One of them asked me if I had Rock Band, and I still do. So we played Rock Band 4. I am still very sad that the rhythm genre kind of died at the end of the last decade. Every single time that I look at Rock Band, I just wish that it took off again because there's something just so nice about being able to get a session in of just playing guitars, going and drums, singing and doing this for endless hours and then telling yourself, oh, you know what? Maybe I'll come back later with friends. And it's so much fun. Even just all of us just yelling and pretending to be a band and fucking up it's just so much fun but everyone got rid of their instruments now so it's not exactly like you can gather people to play rock band again i don't really have much more to say just rock band is fun music good i want to sing paramore moving on from there the very last thing that i have is mgs2 metal gear solid 2 sons of liberty but specifically the VR missions. What are the VR missions? The VR missions are basically virtual reality missions that do not exist in the story and they're all basically to give you extra content to play around with. I would probably never play it out of my own volition. However, trophies. I am slowly trying to get the Platinum Trophy in Metal Gear Solid 2, 3, 4, and perhaps Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker. I already got the trophies for Metal Gear Solid 3, both on the PS3 and the PS Vita. Metal Gear Solid 2 and 4 are going to take me a long time, and I'm doing it piece by piece. One of the trophies for Metal Gear Solid 2 is to complete all the VR and alternate missions. Now, here's the thing. There's 250 of them, and my god, does this game get ridiculously difficult i it's so weird to think about that nowadays this is super annoying but 
I can't imagine being in 2002, you have a PS2, you love Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty so much and you just wanted more of it and then they come out with Metal Gear Solid 2 Subsistence and you're just like, ah, yes, all right, I get to play more Metal Gear. And by the time that I finished all the missions, my clock time said that I spent 40 hours just doing these missions over and over again. And that's the problem. A whole bunch of these are copy and pasted. The VR missions are segmented by each character. There's Raiden, Raiden as a ninja, Raiden naked, Snake, Pliskin, which is someone that Snake is dressed as in Metal Gear Solid 2. There is Snake in a suit, and then there's Metal Gear Solid 1 Snake. Now, the biggest problem with all of this is that all of the Snakes, except Metal Gear Solid 1 Snake, and all of the Raidens basically have almost copy and paste the exact same missions, exact same layouts. The only thing different is the skin you're using. Except, except Metal Gear Solid 1 Snake where the game gets astronomically difficult compared to everything else, almost comedically difficult. Now, here's something that is in Metal Gear Solid 2 and 3 and maybe 4. You can hold up people by putting a gun to and yelling freeze. It'll freeze the guard in place until you do something stupid or, you know, you kill them. You can do this very easily with handguns by just pressing square, or you can lightly press square with an automatic gun. Now, here's the thing. Light pressing a gun with the square button is kind of finicky. You will accidentally shoot these people very often. You try to hold them up with, an, with a rifle. And there's one mission in this game where you have to hold up eight guards in a row without fail or you have to do it all over again. That's just one of the ones that are ridiculously difficult. And the worst part is, is that that was when I started having fun. So many of the other ones were just copy and paste the exact same thing. And it wasn't until I was getting my ass kicked that I finally started having fun. I'm pretty sure that at least 10 hours of those 40 hours were doing just Metal Gear Solid 1 Snake VR missions. And damn, were they difficult. Damn, were they fun. I hope to never have to do this again. And I probably never will because once I get the Platinum Trophy, I'm probably never going to play Metal Gear Solid 2 on a PS3. I have it on PC. I'm probably going to connect to the computer whenever I'm really feeling to play that game again. From there, I'm going to keep getting the Platinum. I need to then beat the game on every single difficulty at least once while holding up every single guard at least once. And this is going to take forever, but I can go and play it on PS3 or I can play it on Vita. I can swap back and forth the saves. So as long as I just keep go doing it at some point, I will get the platinum. It's just going to be thankfully not relying on those VR missions because Jesus Christ, were those difficult? Okay. And that's it. That was the list. So I went through the entire games list. <laughs> I didn't say much of anything. Uh, watch Collateral. Watch Mr. Robot preferably though. Mad Men is still very good as well. If you got this far, cool, thanks. And because it seems that I like it enough, I'll use it again. I'll think of a way to say bye later.